Good morning. Our passage today, as Ron said, is Matthew 21, 1 through 11, which is Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the start of what many call Holy Week. Today's Palm Sunday. Let me encourage you to read along with me while you open the text. I just want to say uh, a huge thank you, a huge praise to God for technology, for our ability to meet. However, we long uh, to embrace you. We long to be back together with you. Although when we do get back together, we'll continue to forego uh, greeting one another with a holy kiss. So let's read together Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, To the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who, who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Every year around this time, around Easter, we're bombarded with news articles and documentaries and new books all dealing with this question asked in verse 10. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Going all the way back to the start of the 18th century, there have actually been three scholarly, official, historical quests to answer this question. A theologian named Albert Schweitzer, who first coined the term, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, after a book that he wrote of the same title in 1906, he argued that ultimately this quest was futile. He said this, What man wishes to be, he makes his God. The historical Jesus for him thus became a projection of what the scholars questing after Jesus wanted Jesus to be. It was as if they were looking down a well of history and the reflection that they saw staring back at them was actually of their own faces. That is why when the crowd who at first is crying out praises to Jesus declaring him to be their king, they see him captured, seemingly helpless, bloody, dying on a cross, and they declare him to be an imposter. This Messiah is nothing like the one they had interpreted from the text, nothing like the reflection they had seen in their wells. He was not the liberator they had envisioned or wanted. In just a week's time, a couple of pages over, and you're going to see many, uh, a, a whole new crowd, a whole new crowd, not shouting, Hosanna, save us, but shouting instead, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, and we have no king but Caesar. And what was true thousands of years ago is still true for us in 2020. Instead of worshiping the God of the Bible who makes us in his image, millions of people on earth try to fashion a God made in their own. Jesus has become our buddy, our vending machine, our pal, our personal genie in a bottle. And this becomes a problem for people only when they actually open the text. Because the God of the Bible is vastly different from the God that they had seen at the bottom of their well. Well, when they embrace this, when they see this for the first time, many of them choose to abandon the inerrancy of Scripture or Jesus 
entirely. Many once enthusiastic Christians we see have done this all throughout history. The question, however, for all of us still remains, who is Jesus? Who is he during a cancer diagnosis? Who is he during a Category 5 hurricane? Who is Jesus to you when you're strapped to a breathing machine struggling for each and every breath? Who is this Jesus of the Word? Let me suggest to you that this is the most important question any of you will ever answer in your lifetime. And as you socially distance yourself safely inside your home, as you should, protecting your family from the unseen enemy virus that lurks outside, let me just remind you that back in 2017, two years ago, or I'm sorry, three years ago now, back in 2017, there were 170,000 unintentional home deaths that happened. And I don't say that to frighten you. I say it to encourage you to use this time to number your days. I say it so that you won't waste another minute of your life and the very short time that God has given all of us on this earth to do his work. I say it so that this question, who Jesus is, who is he, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, would finally, may finally ring true for some of you. The passage before us today is going to answer this question for us. And Lord willing, it's going to give us a gospel injection of hope that we all desperately need during these times. Starting with point one, here's my first point. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem as the luminescent prophet of the God Most High. Starting in verse one, read along with me. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. If you go to Amazon.com and you look at the best-selling Christian authors, the best-selling books, if you look on almost any Christian living, uh, theology, if you look at any list, 15, almost 15 out of the top 25 of almost any list are a bunch of utter nonsense. These are modern-day prophecy books. These are books about people dying, supposedly coming back to life. They're self-help books that are labeled Christian, but they barely mention the Bible. They barely have anything to do with the Bible. Uh, health and wealth, prosperity, hogwash, all of these books are worthless. And yet, they consistently sit at the top of the 25 best-selling books on Amazon. Why do you think that is? I think it's because, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus simply isn't enough for many people. The Bible is viewed as an outdated book that doesn't answer their questions in the ways they want, so they go looking for alternatives that fit their worldviews. You know, the gospel is such good news. It says that somebody else has done the work for you, and people like to do work. They, they want to accomplish their own salvation, and so when we say, believe in Jesus Christ and be saved, they say, and, and then do what? And we say, believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And then what? And the gospel says, get off the treadmill of works and believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. There's a famous televangelist, well-known fraudster, Kenneth Copeland. And last week he said this. He said that God told him the coronavirus would be, and I quote, over much sooner than you think. After Copeland finished his monologue, he reiterated that the virus had ceased to exist and has begun to shrivel. And before looking at his watch, he declared the pandemic finished at noon today. That was last week, I believe almost a week and a half ago. And as of today, there's 65,000 deaths and counting. These books and these televangelists are 
fraudsters. They're fake news. These people are false prophets, false teachers, wolves sent to devour and lead the flock of God astray. And in contrast to all of that nonsense I mentioned, we have Jesus. Jesus, who is giving very specific instructions to his disciples about something that nobody should have known. And these instructions are in direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, and it plays out exactly like it's written. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Zechariah declares that Israel's king is coming. And the verbal tense of this suggests that he's on his way. Even five centuries before Jesus was even born, the supernatural and providential providence of God was bringing the Messiah's arrival. It was well underway already. Five centuries before Jesus was born. You see, Jesus is unique. He's a unique prophet in the sense that he is the subject and object of prophecy himself. It has been worked out that Jesus somehow fulfilled 300 Old Testament prophecies. The famous mathematician Peter Stoner in his book Science Speaks has calculated that the chances of any one man fulfilling all of these prophecies is 10th to the 17th power. And I'm not a mathematician, but I know that's mathematically improbable at best. In Deuteronomy 18.18, Moses is told by God that he will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. God says, I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. You see, Moses was also unique. He was a unique prophet like Jesus in the sense that he was a mediator of the old covenant. Exodus 33.11 says that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So this new prophet like Moses will be unique as well. And the only other prophet in all the Bible that fits these requirements is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the mediator of a new and better covenant that fully accomplishes the atonement necessary for God's people. No more slaughter, no more bloodshed. Once and for all, the Mosaic covenant was a type and shadow of this better covenant and better promises that were instituted by Christ. You see, John's prologue sets the stage for Jesus' prophetic ministry as well. It declares him to be the divine logos, the word of God, the living word made flesh. Jesus is not merely a mouthpiece of God like the prior prophets were. He's God made flesh. And when Jesus speaks, God speaks. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 speaks of the sufficiency of Jesus, the great prophet. It says this, On many past occasions and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So from the very first seven verses here in the triumphal entry, we see that Jesus is the Old Testament prophet. He's like Moses. He's the better Moses. He was to come and speak the very words of God. He's the object and subject of the Old Testament prophecies. He's the luminescent one, the light of the world who brings light to the darkness. The author of Hebrews calls him in 1.3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. As prophet, Jesus pronounces both condemnation for sin and forgiveness and assurance of pardon for God's people. His triumphal entry into the city signaled both deliverance and doom, deliverance for all of God's people, all those who acknowledged him as Messiah, and doom for those who reject 
his words. So what does this mean for us? It means we can take confidence that what Jesus has said will be done, will be accomplished, and that everything recorded in God's word is true, infallible. The canon of scripture is closed because God's revelation to us is complete. We are to listen to God's words and turn to him alone for salvation. Just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress fleed the city of destruction and ran to the cross, so too are we to heed the Spirit's words. May our eyes be opened to him today to see the sweet sufficiency of Scripture and the all-supreme perfection of Jesus Christ. That was the first point. The second point is that Jesus enters Jerusalem as the magnificently triumphant king. Verses 8 through 9. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Growing up, I loved this story of Sir Walter Raleigh. And some of you may know it. He was in love with Queen Elizabeth I. And there was a puddle on the ground. And to keep her from getting, I think the word wording is a plishy plash, uh, stepping in the, the puddle, he took off his, his velvet cloak and he cast it on the puddle so she could walk on it. Uh, and I thought, that's so terribly romantic. I love that. I, I want to do that for a girl one day. Well, poor Sir Walter Raleigh eventually fell from grace. He secretly married one of her maids of honor and was eventually sent to the Tower of London. Uh, so romantic, yes. Uh, poor guy. Gallant, yes. Uh, the queen admired him growing up at least. So there's that. What we see occurring here. And the text is a similar sign of loyalty. As the people cast palm branches and cloaks on the ground before Jesus, they recognize him as the son of David, the rightful heir to the eternal throne that was promised to David through the covenant that David made with God. First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14 is a nice summary of this for us. It says this, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. One of your own sons, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love for him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. This link is highlighted at the very beginning of Matthew. In Matthew's genealogy, he says this, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. In Luke 1, 32 through 33, the angel Gabriel visits Mary. You'll remember this. And he says this. He says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, oh, his kingdom, there will be no end. It's no coincidence that Jesus, the bread of life, sent down from heaven, which is born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, it's the birthplace of King David under both Caesar and Herod's noses, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords sneaks in and is King of all the earth. Jumping back to Zechariah 9.9, we see that the King will come righteous and victorious. And although the cross still awaits us, although the cross is looming in the distance, Jesus, we are told, is the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That's Revelation 13.8 and whose works have been finished since the creation of the world. That's Hebrews 4.3. You see, the cross was always the plan from the beginning. There was never any plan B. And on the cross, Jesus' kingship is on 
full display as he triumphs over sin and Satan and all the powers of darkness and he removes the sting of death and the power of sin over his chosen people forever as our king. You may know that in ancient Egypt when a pharaoh would die, many times they would kill his servants so that they could serve him in the afterlife. When a king would, would, would kings all throughout history have let their servants die in service to them. They send them into battle for fight. But only our king, our King Jesus, goes triumphantly into Jerusalem knowing what he's going to do. Knowing that he is going to die for his people because we could not save ourselves. It's interesting to note in the Bible that there's another king. Another king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Back in 1 Kings, we find an old and weak King David who is dying and he's seemingly oblivious to what's going on in his kingdom. Okay? One of David's sons, Adonijah, decides he wants to be king and he holds a secret coronation party. He gets Joab, who's a military leader. He gets Abiathar, who's a priest. And he holds a secret coronation party for himself. Now the problem with this is back in 1 Chronicles 23.1, David's already marked Solomon as king. God's already made a promise that it would come through Solomon. And so Bathsheba and Nathan, the prophet, they enter the story. They tell David what's going on. And David springs into action. He gives his royal donkey to Solomon and parades him into Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley in a very public ceremony for everyone to see. Adonijah, David's other son, his secret coup fails. You see, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus retracing Solomon's path across the Kidron Valley, entering Jerusalem on a donkey as the eternal son of David. There's no secret coup. It's public. Everyone can see that Jesus is the rightful, true king. Jesus himself declares in Matthew 12, 42, he says this, Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. We would be foolish to stop up our ears like they did. We would be foolish to stop up our ears like other people do. Instead, let us listen to the prophet who is greater than Moses, the true descendant of David, and the king wiser than Solomon. Bringing this full circle, in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, John has this glorious, magnificent vision of heaven of a great multitude of believers. And they're all wearing white robes and they're worshiping. Now listen to this. After this, he says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now did you catch what was in their hands? Palm branches being waved by the church triumphant in heaven in adoration and praise of the almighty God of creation who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I look forward to participating in that worship service one day with all of you. No social distancing. No more. Until then, we humble ourselves. We submit ourselves to the king, to the kingship, to his rule, to his precepts. Now is the time to kiss the son lest he be angry. Now is the time to bow before the king of mercy, receive his good gifts. Now is the time because there may not be a tomorrow. None of us are promised tomorrow. And the king is coming soon. On earth, Jesus rode a humble donkey coming into Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace. But in Revelation 19, at the end of days, he comes in power 
and judgment and wrath, riding a white, riding a white horse, fall at the throne of grace now and rest in his loving rule. Thirdly, finally, Jesus enters Jerusalem as the eternally great high priest. I'm not sure if you noticed this or knew about this, but the Pope is locked up in the Vatican right now to avoid getting the virus. But don't worry, because just recently he submitted a prayer to Mary, and he called her the salvation of Rome, and he asked her to save us. So that's great news. It's great news. Mary's on it. She's working on it. Uh, I wondered about the confessions as well. You know how they go into confessional. They have to keep that up. And it turns out the Catholic priests are doing what they call drive-through confessionals, drive-up confessions. People roll up their car, you know, pull their cars up, roll down their windows, and they confess their most private and personal sins at a six-feet distance. So that's not inconvenient, probably not awkward at all. Uh, the, the communal holy water, I don't know if you knew this, but they emptied the communal holy water because you don't want to spread the virus, you know. So communal holy water, holy water is good for warding off demons, not so good on viruses. The California megachurch, Bethel, maybe you've heard of them as well. They suspended their so-called faith-healing hospital visits during the coronavirus. This is the same group that claims to have brought people back from the dead, so, but they're unable to assist. It would have been a huge help. It's a bummer. In fact, all the faith healers, they vanished. We don't know where they are. Uh, they may be in their mansions. We don't know what they're doing. Beloved, there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one priest who you confess to. There's only one priest who can actually absolve us of our sins. The Bible says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's grace, throne of grace, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Luke's gospel highlights this in a unique, awesome way. He highlights the priestly office of Jesus. Jesus heals people. He lays his hands on the sick, the demon-possessed. He touches lepers. He, he, he raises a widow's son from the dead. Jesus alone has the power to heal us and to forgive us of our sins. Luke also starts his gospel out with this wonderful story of Zechariah the priest. You may remember this, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah goes into the temple. It's his time to do the worship service. And while he's in there, he meets angel Gabriel. And Gabriel says, hey, you're going to have a son. It's going to be great. Uh, Zechariah talks back to him. Don't do that. Don't ever talk back to an angel. And the angel says, you know what? You're going to be mute for a while. You're not going to talk. And that's going to be good for everybody. Okay. Well, the problem with this is that Zachariah is supposed to come out and give the ironic blessing where he'd raise his hands and say, let the Lord bless you, keep you. He's supposed to give the blessing to the people. And so he comes out and the people are waiting. And Zachariah, he's unable to give the blessing. And so we start out Luke with an inadequate priest, with a priest who is unable to perform his duties. But listen to the last chapter of Luke, Luke 24, 50 through 51. When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. You see, we started with an inadequate priest and we ended with the only priest we'll ever need. The only high priest who is in heaven, who is our mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews seven twenty-three through 27 again. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. 
But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always, he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. Pastor Alistair Begg says this. He says, The only safe haven for a man or woman is in the mercy of God as manifested in Christ, in whom every part of our salvation is complete. You see, in the threefold office of Christ, we are granted complete and total freedom from our sins. Complete and total salvation. So back to the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Verse 11, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Some of the crowds say, son of David. But when he was captured, they didn't run to defend their king. Others say, as many of us do, oh, you know, just a good prophet, just a wise person, just a, you know, great words. I don't like it all, but just, you know, good stuff to say. But those who call themselves Christians, those who are believers, we have the better response. Listen to Peter's words in Matthew 16, 15 through 16. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you know who Jesus is today? Have you read the words of Jesus and found him to be the infinitely luminescent prophet of God? The divine logos, the very word of God made flesh. Do you know Jesus as the eternally triumphant king who's victorious over sin and death and remains our king forever? The earth is his footstool. Do you know that Jesus is the magnificently great high priest who sacrificed himself in our place once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous? He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All the sin that you ever committed, past, present, and future, laid on his shoulders, cast into the sea. He's the great bearer of God's wrath in our place. If you do not know this Jesus today, I pray you will seek his face. Turn from your sin and cry out to the Lord. I leave you with Luke 19, 41 through 43. This is an event that takes place right before Jesus enters Jerusalem. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And so during this somber, uncertain time in our nation's life, us as believers, as ambassadors of Christ, let us be the first ones to weep. Let us be the first ones to repent of our sins and cry out to God to humble ourselves. Let us mourn with those who mourn. Let us be the hands and feet of Jesus. And let us offer endless matchless hope that the gospel gives to us found only in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray.